0: From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on in to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have had you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Thanks so much, Kat. Do have uh, that open in front of you. Uh, we are, this term, at least for the next few weeks, working our way through this astonishing letter uh, from uh, the Apostle Paul, one of the very first Christians, very first followers of Jesus. And uh, it's a letter written some 1,950 years ago. It's delving a long way back in, uh, in history uh, to a letter written uh, from prison uh, to some of the very earliest Christians And uh, it's a remarkable letter that I think is going to repay some careful reading and some listening to God through it all. Uh, Perhaps one of the downsides of the age of the electronic message, whether that's uh, WhatsApp, chat, uh, an email or a text message, perhaps one of the downsides is that we're left uh, without something physical uh, to hold on to from past communication. Um, I've been doing some filing over the last couple of months, I I got to a point where actually the piles were just too deep, and so I've been going through um, various different files and filing cabinets and delving back uh, into um, my history and our history, and uh, one of the things that I found are various files with letters that we received, Um, not just sort of, you know, any old letter, but letters that felt particularly significant at the time. Do you remember those days when people used to write stuff on paper and put it in an envelope and put a stamp on and all of that business? You know, real handwritten letters. Um, it, it feels almost quaint and old-fashioned to imagine it now. But you know, I look back at those letters and I sat and reread some of them, and almost all of them have quite an emotional heft to them. There's something about the impact of picking up a pen and putting words on paper, uh, and Holding on to that piece of paper and then reading it uh, in a couple of cases 20 30 years later that carries with it quite an emotional punch. Um, some of them from uh, kids who were once upon a time in my youth work youth group when I was a youth worker writing about stuff later in life. Um, a couple of series of letters from uh, friends of mine who were clergy in other parts of the country who were really struggling with uh, this, that, or the other. Um, letters of friendship and of joy, letters of, uh, in times of difficulty, they, they carry with them quite an emotional weight. This letter written by Paul carried with it such an impact, such a weight, such heft, as it were, that it's lasted not just a few days, months, or even decades in somebody's filing cabinet, but it's lasted long enough to actually make its way down through history to us sitting in 2019 in All Souls Church. It's a letter that carried with it such power in the lives of those who first heard it that they said, we want to hold on to that and we want to pass it on. It's a letter that what we discover is that God speaks through to Christians some 2,000 years later. A A letter that was worth reading, a letter that was worth hearing, The first time it was read out, maybe in an assembly a bit smaller than this, in somebody's house in Philippi, a letter that's worth hearing today. It was a letter that was written to Christians who were in a town called Philippi in Macedonia or Greece, written, we think, in about uh, AD 60, uh, some 10 years after Paul had founded the church there. If you go back into the book of Acts, you find that Paul, one of those earliest of Christians, uh, traveled uh, through what we would think of as the ancient world uh, telling people about the good news of Jesus and one of the places he came to was Philippi and in Philippi uh, he met a group of what were called God-fearing uh, Greeks. Uh, they were people who followed the Jewish faith. Uh, there were people who had to worship sort of uh, basically in the open air because there was no synagogue in Philippi and um, uh, he meets them down uh, on the beach And uh, Lydia, who's a a trader in purple cloth, we're told, uh, and some of her companions are there worshipping God together, and he says to them, you know that God that you've begun to get to know? Well, I've got good news for you. Because in Jesus, you meet him face to face. You know that God whom you've begun to hear through the Old Testament Scriptures? Well, I've got good news for you. You now get to hear him in the person of Jesus. You know that God whom you want to know so much? well, I've got good news for you. In Jesus, he's come to know you and to invite you into friendship with him. And Lydia and others uh, form that very early church uh, in Lydia's home, in her villa uh, in Philippi, and they start to meet there. And over the next 10 years, Paul revisits them at least a couple of times. Um, He has to depart fairly swiftly if you read Act 16 uh, because uh, there's some controversy about what he's doing and what he's preaching, and he has to escape rather than be imprisoned once, once more. And over the next 10 years, he visits them a couple of times, and then, as far as we can tell, he ends up in prison, or at least imprisoned, possibly under house arrest, we think probably in Rome, some 10 years later, in AD 60. So this is less than 30 years after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And he writes them this letter. i said that Paul was under probably house arrest. He was certainly in chains, and he was certainly uh, under the BDI of rome and of the empire i wonder what sort of letter you would write from prison especially if you were in prison for something that was entirely an unjust accusation if it were me i'd be writing a letter of complaint if it were me i'd be writing a letter probably of some despair and desperation if it were me well let's face it it would be a letter about me And yet this letter from Paul to the Philippians absolutely is none of those things. It's not a letter of complaining or of desperation or of self-centered concern. This letter, as we read it, is a letter of joy. Not a sort of whistle a happy tune and put my fingers in my ears and close my eyes and pretend I'm not in prison, joy, but joy that comes from knowing that there is something bigger at work. A letter of confidence, not desperation a letter for encouragement, not complaining, and most of all, a letter that isn't all about him, but a letter that is all about them, the recipients, and most of all, a letter that is all about Jesus. And it's an astonishing letter, written from very difficult circumstances to people who needed encouragement, who needed building up, who needed uh, propelling forward to grow in their faith. So I wonder, If you'd been there, if I'd been there, standing in that house church in Philippi, roughly AD 60 or 61, and this letter had been read out. Don't forget, they didn't have printers or faxes or photocopies or anything like that. This would have been read from the front. And you'd heard these opening words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus of Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder what you'd have heard. I wonder what it would have said to you. I wonder what impact it would have had on your life. Well, those opening few sentences, what we call verses 1 and 2, are words all about identity. And they're particularly and peculiarly appropriate for a day such as today, where we've been praying blessing on two tiny little new lives who are just, through Jamie and Noah, growing into their identity and who they are as human beings. But it's appropriate for all of us to ask that question, who are we? Who are we meant to be? Whether you're somebody in your relative youth, whether you're like me, thoroughly middle-aged, whether you're thinking that actually you're in definitely the second half of life, whatever point of life you're in, this question of who am I, our identity, is pretty crucial. It shapes how we feel about ourselves, it shapes how we feel about other people. It shapes our parenting, if we're parents. It shapes our working patterns, if we're in work. It shapes our aims and intentions and dreams as we look ahead. So who does Paul think that he is and that they are? That's the big question that we'd have heard addressed at the start of this letter. Paul starts by talking about his identity. He says, Paul and Timothy, Timothy was one of his companions, and he'd been there in Philippi right back at the beginning. Paul and Timothy, servants, or probably more accurately, and maybe in a little bit more of a jarring sense, that word really means more like slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, here is somebody who, in their terms could have lorded it over them. He'd founded their church. He was the most famous Christian around. Uh, He was a well-educated, well-brought-up, well-thought-of man, and he describes himself in, to use terms not just from 2,000 years ago, but from today, in one of the most lowly ways possible. He says, I'm a slave, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, part of the reason for doing that is because He's pointing ahead to something he's going to get to in chapter 2, and we'll get to in a few weeks' time, where he talks about Jesus, the king of the universe, who steps down out of the glory of heaven and out of the throne room of God and becomes, to use the same word again, a slave. Taking the form of a slave, serving, enslaved to our well-being. But he's also making a very important point about who he is. What Paul is saying to them is, you know, the most important thing about me is who I serve. The most important thing about me is who I serve. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, when he turns to them and says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, you'd imagine, at least in our language, that he's gone from like the bottom of the heap to the top of the heap. You don't have to be a particularly religious sort of person to use the word saint in a sort of of top-of-the-pile way. Uh, If you look around our stained-glass windows, we've got a few saints. It's what we think of as saints, the great and the good, the saints of history, who are the ones that we look up to, not down to, but up to. They're the top of the pile. They're the people that we aspire to be like. But he's actually, in the end, saying something much more similar to slave than we might imagine. Because the language that he's using of saint doesn't mean what we've turned it into. It definitely doesn't mean those who are at the top of a pile, those who are better than anybody else. Saint is a translation of a word that simply means set apart, belonging to, chosen by. Saint means holy, which itself means those things. It means a group of people or a person who have been set apart to belong. And God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, were always described as God's holy people, God's set-apart people, his saints, the ones who belong to him. In other words, what he's saying of the Philippians who are here in this letter is pretty much very similar to what he's saying about himself as being a slave. Just a different angle on it. He's saying, I belong to Christ Jesus as his slave. You belong to Christ Jesus too. You've been set apart. You belong to him. Now, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because that was a controversially competing statement. They lived in Philippi. Now, Philippi in the ancient world was a fairly significant city. Uh, For a couple of hundred years, it had been a Roman city, being part of the Roman Empire. And for about a hundred years, it had been a place where if you belonged there, you weren't simply part of the empire, you were a citizen of Rome. You were a citizen. You belonged to Rome. And more than that, your allegiance was claimed by the emperor, the lord. The lord, that's what they called him. The lord emperor, the king. The ruler you belonged to him and let nothing take that away from you you were reminded that on every street corner in every temple on every coin on every banner you were reminded that you belonged to the emperor to caesar you were his they wouldn't always want to use the word slave because they were real slaves who simply were bits of property that other people had but effectively you were because you had to do what you were told This was quite a controversial moment. It comes quite a lot in Paul's letters. He looks at his people and he says to them, look, I know you live in Philippi, or I know you live in Rome, or I know you live in Colossae, or whatever it is. I know where you live. I know you live in London. I know you have an allegiance, but you have a greater allegiance. Because the one to whom you really belong is the one who made you. The one to whom you really belong is the one who knows you from the inside out. The one to whom you really belong is the one who's given himself in Jesus to die for you. To give everything for your forgiveness, for your friendship. The one to whom you really belong, the one to whom you are a slave, is the one who in Jesus became your slave. You give yourself to him because first he gave everything for you. That's what's going to come up in Philippians chapter 2. But that sense of identity is the foundation for everything that's going to come in the rest of this letter. You and I, he says, belong. We belong to the one who gave everything for us. We owe everything to the one who has already given everything for us. You belong. And the source of that gift, verse two, that grace and peace is from God our Father and the Lord. There's that word, the word used of Caesar, but now he uses it of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, which simply means God's free gift of himself to us before ever we've done anything for him and the peace that follows, that wholeness, that putting together of our lives. It's the most important thing we're praying for Jamie and for Noah as they grow up. We're praying for them more than we pray for them to have health and wealth and happiness, that we pray all of those things too, clearly. But more than any of those things, what we pray for them, what we pray for any child, is that they will grow up knowing who they are, who they belong to, who has given everything for them, and that they will be able to love God back, even as they find themselves loved. And the rest of this little bit that Cat read for us, the beginning of this letter that unpacks so much of what's going to come later in the letter, effectively says, well, okay, if that's who you are, if that's who I am, what does it look like? One of the dangers of religion, one of the dangers of any sort of faith, is that it remains as a thought, a theory, an idea, a feeling. But true faith finds its way out in practical living. True faith finds its way out in practical living. That's true of any identity. If you really want to know whether you are truly living, out the identity you think you have. If you really want to know who you think you are, look at how you live. So it's quite a challenging moment, that. If you want to really know who you think you are, look at how you live, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you use your body, how you use your words, where you place your emotions, what your ambitions are, what your hopes are. They will reflect, they will be the outworkings of who you think you fundamentally are. And what you see over these next few verses, and I'm going to just mention them very briefly, are three of the ways in which faith works its way out practically. The first is with generosity. With generosity. Verses three to six. I thank my God every time I remember you. Actually, I think that there's a a slightly better... The way that Paul wrote it is quite ambiguous. Um, And you know how sometimes translating one language into another, you can't always be exactly sure what somebody wrote and what somebody meant. I think a better translation of this is actually I thank my God um, every time I think of your remembering me. Because what this letter fundamentally lands with at the end of chapter 4 is with this gift they've sent to him with Epaphroditus. Paul's in prison, and in those days you didn't get fed until, unless somebody brought you food. You didn't get looked after unless somebody else looked after you. And so the Philippians have heard of him in prison. They've sent a gift through Epaphroditus. And part of this letter is to say thank you to them. For their gift. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. That word partnership is a together word. It's a throwing in your lot together, going into business together, having a common purpose together. And what he's saying to them is actually, your faith has worked its way out in generous partnership. There's a generosity towards me, he says, that shows that you know who you are, that we belong together in our identity. Secondly, Their faith is worked out in resilience. Verse 7 onwards. It's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, absolutely isn't to be guaranteed an easy ride. Actually, for many Christians down through the centuries, it's been the exact polar opposite of that as we pray for Jamie and for Noah, as we pray for ourselves following Jesus, what we're not able to do is to promise them or to promise us that everything's easy. There will actually be times in their lives and in our lives where living out our true identity in Jesus actually makes life more tough, not less tough, where we meet opposition, where we have to make difficult decisions, where we have to do that which at a gut level we wish we didn't have to do. But what we find in that faith is a resilience to be able to say whether I'm in chains or whether I'm out free talking about the good news of Jesus, actually I know that I belong. I know who I am. Generosity of partnership, resilience in the face of opposition, and then verses 9 to 11, living simply a godly life. And this is my prayer, he says to them, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best And may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's saying to them, actually, I want you to know this love of God. I want you to be filled with the love and the grace and the spirit of God. Not just so that you know who you are. Not just that you feel good about God. Not just so that you have those warm feelings of encouragement, but so that you can live a life of obedient response to Him. So that your whole life will be shaped by who you are. By who you are in Christ Jesus. So, what do you and I hear as we hear this letter today and over the coming few weeks? We hear a challenge and we hear an encouragement. The challenge is simply to ask this question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And if you're not sure, stand back and look at your life. Ask yourself how you live. Ask yourself what your priorities are, what your ambitions are, what drives you, what motivates you. Who do you really think you are? And Paul wants to say to you, to say to me, you're loved, you belong. You're part of the family of God. You belong to Jesus Christ. You're his slave because he first became your slave. He served you and gave everything to you first. So your identity is in loving him back, in living for him back. That's the challenge. Who do you think you are? But secondly, this encouragement. That in discovering who we are in Jesus Christ, there is joy. Joy is a word we're going to explore much more over the next few weeks. But it avowedly absolutely isn't simply happiness. Happiness has to do with my circumstances. Joy has to do with my identity. Happiness goes up and down depending on the time of day and what I've eaten for the meal last night and and what's happening in my life and how I feel. Joy has to do with knowing that I am loved by my heavenly Father, that somebody has given everything for me. And that will not change irrespective of what happens in my life. A challenge to know who we are and encouragement to find joy in Him. We pray those things for Jamie and Noah. We pray those things for people doing Alpha. We pray those things for each of us. That that's what we will know and that's what we'll discover. Let's be still for a moment. I'm going to read this passage, uh, parts of it, one more time. And give ourselves just a little bit of space to hear it to allow God by His Spirit to speak to us and simply to say back to God what it is we need to say. I don't know whether you're somebody that prays often. If not, now's a good time to start. You lose nothing by giving it a go. I wonder what it is you want to say to God in response to these words that are true of you. Paul and Timothy, servants. Of Christ Jesus, slaves of Jesus, to all the set-apart ones in Christ Jesus at Philippi and here in London, together with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership and the good news. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, says Paul to the Christians in Philippi. This is my prayer for us here in London. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God.